Allow me to start by saying that there is such an unusual situation when it comes to Star Trek. I know I've kind of already done my preface video, but from my perspective, I recorded that a couple weeks ago. Um, and then I did all of Enterprise. Uh, so I am recording this from my perspective after having covered all the Enterprise episodes that are going to be coming out for the rest of this year. So this should be interesting, comparing and contrasting the two. Uh, something that will also come up soon. Obviously, I'm covering the cage. Here we are. And I will be covering the episodes in production order, for reasons I'll discuss next week. But yeah, it, to contrast this to Enterprise, Enterprise, there are episodes where I have effectively no behind-the-scenes material. Like, I know who the writers are, I know who the director is, and that's basically it. I have to cross-reference like crazy to pull anything more than that. By contrast, I have such a wealth of information when it comes to the original series that I'm having trouble getting a handle on it all. We also have the problem that there's a lot of lies here. And I know you're thinking, oh, lore, what the heck? But no, I mean, when people actively disagree with each other among factoids, at least one of them is incorrect. So I suppose saying lies is a bit uh, disingenuous because it might just be, you know, screwing up. But the point is, there's some issues figuring out the specifics. So if I say something here that is wrong or disagrees with something that you disagree with, then that's probably why. And I wanted to give that boilerplate right up front. I actually, if you remember, I did the exact same thing when it came to TNG, especially early TNG, where there was a lot of misinformation. Near as I can tell, and I hate to start this with this, but I, 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 this is my job, and this is my speculation. Near as I can tell, this misinformation thing is most commonly centered around Roddenberry himself. Now, whoops, Roddenberry, I, I hate to continue to speak ill of the man, because, you know, he's dead. But I don't share the idea that just because someone has passed on doesn't change the fact that you suddenly can't speak ill of them. Or the reverse, that all of a sudden you can speak ill of them. You ever notice that? It's one of those two things. Either, no, 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 we can't say anything bad about them because they're dead. Or, oh, thank goodness they're dead. Now we can start bashing them. Look at what was attempted uh, when, uh, oh, God, uh, Mr. Rogers passed on. There was that brief attempt to just to just vilify him and make him out this horrible person. Now thankfully that fell on its face. But still, that's the kind of this is the kind of thing I've observed quite a bit in, in human history over the course of my own existence here. But also reading back into the past, a lot of times people will be like, oh well I have something to say about them now that they're no longer here. But I'm just here to talk as close to facts as I can. I view this from the perspective of a historian, which means I'm going to borrow a quote here that I've seen a lot of times, triangulating the truth, trying to figure out as close to the truth as possible from multiple different accounts which disagree with each other, and trying to get a bit of a vibe on things. Which brings me to Roddenberry. One of the things that... Oh, God, I didn't write down his name, did I? I've got so many names in my head, please forgive me. And I did just watch the episode. Um, well, Solo mentioned this. But also another guy whose name I can't... Oh my god, don't tell me I didn't write down his name. Here it is. Justman. There we go. Herbert, Herbert Solo and Robert Justman. I was about to have to stop the recording and go look up the damn name. Both of them have agreed on a point that Roddenberry had a tendency, deliberate or otherwise, we're not sure if this was intentional, but he had a tendency to just sort of assume credit for things that other people did. 
Uh, a good example of this is that he tended to build a lot of credit around making Star Trek around himself. Now, don't mistake me. Roddenberry absolutely gets credit for Star Trek. He was the one who was bullish on it. He was the one who really pushed it. He's the one who wrote a lot of the original stuff. And it was his vision that really dragged it together. So he does get credit. He just doesn't get sole credit, which was something that Roddenberry tended to do a lot, especially in the convention circuit that started up in you know before TNG got going, and especially when TNG got going. So when Roddenberry gets involved, there tends to be a blurring of the truth. And again, I'm not calling him a liar. I am only stating what appears to be true based on what we have seen and what many people have correlated. Now, this is why I relate this to TNG Season 1, because that was Roddenberry's season of Star Trek, and there was a lot of blurring of the truth there. In fact, a lot of the information that I shared about the TNG stuff didn't actually come into light until surprisingly recently. And thankfully, that information was already available when I actually sat down to start covering the show. By contrast, T the TOS information really started to come out around 1996. Um, now, I actually don't have my copy of the book here. I have asked my mother to mail me a copy of the book so I can start referencing it. But there's a book called Inside Star Trek, The Real Story by Herbert Solo and by Robert Justman, which is an invaluable insight into the creation and making of Star Trek, which I will be referencing for the shows after this one, uh, for the episodes after this one, I mean. And I highly recommend, if you have availability, to get a hold of it to do so. It's a fascinating read. And like I said, it's been out since the late 90s or mid-90s. But I'm bringing up all of this to kind of preface the, the mentality I'm walking into this. I'm going to be stating things with certainty, because that's how I say most things. Otherwise, everything I say will be like... And I don't think you want to listen to 40 minutes of... So please forgive me for going into presuming. But if you could just add an asterisk of, this is probably what happened, or this is what I think happened to everything I'm about to say, please please feel free to do so, okay? Just, just do me that favor. All right, so where do we begin? I've already talked about the making of Star Trek from a... Uh, show perspective, and I talked about the cage, but let's 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 narrow down onto the cage specifically. Herbert Solo, who was a producer, an executive producer, was one of the people who really played hardball in order to make sure that they, when they were pushing to get this thing happening, that it did in fact happen. Uh, him and Justman, as well as another person who I'll be bringing up more uh, next episode, they all, the the three of them, were the producers who went to bat, so to speak, for for Star Trek, who actually tried to get this show in there. They were the equivalent of Rick Berman. Now, I know that sounds like an insult, but do please remember that the main reason we got TNG and DS9 and Voyager and Enterprise was because of Rick Berman. He was a slimy executive, but he was our slimy executive. He was pushing, and he was going to bat for Star Trek amongst the other executives and producers. So... He was a necessary component in order to get those shows happening. If, so that's, thus you see the parallel here. These people sat down and was like, okay, we really need to make this happen. And they w reached out to ABC, no sell. They reached out to CBS, no sell. They reached out to NBC, and it's like, okay, listen, we need to make this happen. And there are tons and tons of stories about the specifics of how this came to be. But what it came down to was there was this uh, studio, Desilu. Now, from my perspective, I've actually already talked about Desilu. Uh, they'll be coming up when it comes to Enterprise later, believe it or not. Desilu, some of you have probably at least heard of them, even if you've never heard the name, because you've probably heard of I Love Lucy. 
They were the studio. They were kind of struggling and had some issues financially, but they were the studio who decided to give Star Trek its its shot. It's like, okay, fine. We'll go ahead and let you use our studio, use our slots, and we'll go ahead and push this show out. Which is interesting because, near as I can tell, Miss Bell, Lucy Bell, wasn't that into Star Trek or against it, but the other gentleman, whose name I probably have written down somewhere in this mess, uh, was a lot more in favor of it and was willing to give the show the shot. By the way, if you're paying attention, as I already talked about last week in the, the series video, and as I'll be talking about today and tomorrow, and by tomorrow I mean next week, there are so many examples of individuals who are like, yeah, okay, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, okay, I'll give it a shot. It's like it, it's so many times Star Trek almost didn't happen, but then someone was like, yeah, okay. But then, and then it got to the next barrier, and I was like, nah, but then, and then someone gives it a shot. And just this is just a repeating pattern. It is such a lucky, fortunate coincidence that Star Trek got made. But then again, we could say the same thing about a lot of cultural aspects of our society, including Star Wars, to use another popular candidate. But anyways, Desilu decided, okay, sure. Um, so we got three outlines that Roddenberry sat down. He had a small budget to work with. It's like, all right, so we've got... Uh, we could do The Cage, we could do Return of the Archons, or we could do Mud's Women. Now, <laughs> they weren't called that yet, but this is what this was. And the, the treaties he worked, wrote down for the second and third things became Return of the Archons and Mud's Women, respectively. They also... Uh, Roddenberry, when he, when he was given the green light, and I do want to give him credit for writing this episode, by the way, although... He had one se sequence which was just not good. But otherwise, this is a pretty well-written episode, so give him credit for that. Um, Roddenberry sat down and was like, okay, I'm going to make this. Screw the, screw the budget. Screw the visual effects. I'm just going to make the episode. We'll worry about making it happen later. Whether that's the right call or not, that's up to you. That's kind of a judgment call. It's just interesting that his approach for a show he was desperately trying to get sold was, screw the practicality, I'm going to go, I'm going to reach for the stars, and we'll make it work later. Historically speaking, that's generally not a good idea. Maybe it worked in this case? I don't know. But either way, what ended up happening was he also called in a man whose name I wrote down here. Is that a... Harvey P. Lynn. Now, Harvey Lynn... This is actually funny. Harvey Lynn was brought in to be a technical advisor. He was an actual budding scientist and had some cred on that. Now, the reason I find that so funny is because this is the first episode of Star Trek ever, and they already had a tech advisor on, on staff in order to make things more believable, more understandable, more relatable. And that was something that Roddenberry was really big on. He wanted the science in his science fiction show to be rather core science. So anybody who's ever talked about the technobabble aspect of things, that definitely wasn't there at the beginning. Or was it? Because here's the funny part. I wrote down a list, just a short list, this isn't everything, of suggestions Lynn had. Uh, the docking thing, I'll come back to that in just a second. The fact that the ship recently left Earth in order to explain the new recruits. Uh, he wanted to make Talos IV closer instead of on the other side of the galaxy, because that's nonsense. Also, he himself pointed out the inconsistency, yes, our very first nitpick in Star Trek history, of the fact that this ship, which was invented before Faster Than Light Drive, even though that's inconsistent, was lost 18 years ago, and yet it's on the other side of the galaxy? It, like, there's an obvious plot hole there. 
and but and he and Lynn has said yeah, you should fill that plot hole. Just make it closer. Maybe use a known star like Draconis or Vega or Centauri. In fact, he actually recommended to make them the Centauran uh, uh, slave traders rather than the Orion slave traders. Uh, maybe you should make it a region instead of the whole quadrant. Maybe you should change the gravity on the planet. They actually did that one. Maybe you should make this one guy a geologist instead of astro-scientist. They did that too. Uh, maybe you should cut out the whole batteries for the survivors things and change the distress beam. That, the scene that is being referenced there was actually cut from the final product. Uh, make it so that the lasers are called something other than lasers. Huh. But I, I want to circle back to that la docking launching thing. See, they wanted to do this thing where the Enterprise itself could land. I have no idea how they plan to make that work, but then again, this is before the model was made. So they wanted to make a thing where the Enterprise could land, and other smaller ships would dock with the Enterprise, and those were like previous iterations. So th the thought here was like, imagine... I'm actually having trouble coming up with a science fiction concept here. Imagine that there's... Uh, Frel, I actually can't think of a good analogy. So there's the ship... Imagine if the NX-01 could dock with the Constitution, and the Constitution was just a more modern, bigger NX-01. That was the idea. The bigger ship basically became a carrier for the older ships that used to be the bigger ships. That was the concept. Now, Lynn suggested several changes to that. Uh, change it so that the smaller ship, rather than being a previous ship, was actually a shuttle. Um... Like I said, the recently re left Earth things. Also, he suggested several, several changes to the docking sequence in order to make it so that it seemed more realistic and believable. This was also a scene that was cut, uh, as well as the new recruits thing was, was kind of cut as well. There's this bit where he mentions he does have new recruits thanks to the losses he took back on whatever the planet was. But that's it. That's all that really remains of that plot thread. So he... This version of the script was reached out to Lucy Bell. I mentioned her earlier. She, by all accounts, did not actually read the script. Shrug. Um, this also led to Roddenberry's... The first issue of what I would call bad-mouthing Roddenberry. Although, I, I hesitate to even call this bad-mouthing, because honestly, I'm pretty sure I would react the same way, and frankly, I imagine a lot of you would, too. Roddenberry got very defensive about his script. He didn't like changes. He didn't want people to nitpick or alter. This was his script, and this is the way he wanted to do it, damn it. Right? You ever get that defensive about something you've made? Maybe it's a model. Maybe it's a video or a song or, a, or just something you've written or drawn. Right? You know what I'm talking about. The problem here <laughs> is that he apparently got legitimately abrasive about this and possessive as in to the point where people would suggest changes and he would just assume that they were his ideas. So this idea of Roddenberry just kind of taking credit goes all the way back to the beginning. According to accounts, this may not be true. By the way, I referenced Star Wars earlier on purpose because George Lucas also tends to blur, past tense, I don't know if this is still happening, tended to blur the truth a lot to kind of make this myth of the creation of Star Wars. Like it was always some big planned thing instead of the jumbled mess and huge compilation work that it actually was. <clears throat> Anywho. So, we need to bring in some people now. Alright. Uh, Majel Barrett was in early on and... <sighs> There's a lot of interviews about Majel Barrett and Roddenberry at this point, and 
You know, I'm just going to jump over that. Is that cool? Really? I don't see what she saw in him. But I'm not into guys, so I don't actually know how to judge that to begin with. But Majel Barrett, regardless of her role in the things at this point in history, uh, it's worth noting, nobody said anything bad about her, just her acting talent. They said that she just really didn't work in her role. Uh, this is, in fact, one of the reasons why she was axed from the role. It wasn't because they couldn't believe that you couldn't possibly have a woman in command. It was that they couldn't believe that the actress in question could actually manage the role. This is funny because her contrast to, to both Pike and to Nimoy served a lot of developing what would eventually become the Spock character. Go figure. Funny little side story, by the way. They had to do the green makeup for the Orion Slave Girls. So, because Majel Barrett was there, and because this was kind of a, we're just making it up as we go kind of a production, they went ahead and just did the makeup on her rather than any of the actual actresses they are going to be doing it, including uh, the woman who plays Vina herself, who I don't remember her name. <laughs> oh, God, tell me I wrote down her name. I don't think I did. I don't think I wrote down her name. Hang on, hang on. This is important. I want to know what her name is. I have so many, so many things here. Oh my god, you've got to be kidding me with this. Point being, though, they were doing the makeup setting on her instead of the other woman whose name is Susan Oliver. Thank you. God, my memory. I can remember Jeffrey Hunter, but not Susan Oliver. Anyways, they, they wanted to do the, the makeup on her because they had to. I'm saying that wrong. They had to do the makeup on her because you know Susan Oliver wasn't available. And they, they bring in the shots, and it's like, well, it's not even showing up. So they did it, and they did it, and they did it several times over again, trying to make the green makeup look good in the shots. It just kept being terrible. Turns out the photography department had been decolorizing the green because they assumed her skin wasn't supposed to look green. Anyways, <clears throat> speaking of Susan Oliver, they brought her in. Well, I say they, uh, a specific individual brought her in, and that would be Oscar Katz. I wanted to make sure I say that right. Katz is an interesting character. I'm actually going to be talking more about him next week, but he was one of those executives I mentioned earlier who really went to bat for Star Trek and got it going. But his main contribution isn't actually for this episode. While he was involved in getting Miss Oliver involved, and he was involved in trying to you know, push the show, his main involvement in Star Trek history would come later. So just remember that name. But he brought in her as basically a personal favor while also saying, it's okay. It's a simple, quick, easy job. It's not going to involve a lot of makeup or a lot of lines, or you see where this is going. This actually turned into a joke that several uh, shows actually carried forward, saying, where is he? Because he, he kept not showing up on stage because he was afraid to do so, at least by his own admissions. But then we had to figure out who to cast everyone else. Um, so how do we cast these people? Joseph D'Agosta, uh, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, I'm, I'm going to screw up a lot of these pronunciations, by the way, was the casting director, specifically because he'd already worked with Roddenberry before. Remember, this was not Roddenberry's first rodeo. In fact, none of these people were new to television. This was all the, you know, a project by, by people who were regulars in television production at the time. So he, re he reached out to Joseph, and Joseph's like, um, I'm kind of busy. So Joseph actually did the casting over the phone. That actually would lead to a change later, which I'll get to in a minute. But they ended up trying to pick out several characters for the character of Spock, including Martin Landau, DeForest Kelly, and my personal favorite, Lloyd Bridges. 
They also weren't sure who, or who they wanted to get for Pike. Lloyd Bridges was also in consideration for Pike, consequently. Um, they w weren't sure how to do the Telosians. It was actually an idea to cast the Telosians with women and then dub them over with men voice acting in order to kind of add to the alien androgynous nature of them, which I actually think worked out pretty well. They also brought in Robert Butler. He was the director. Now, this is kind of a big deal. Robert, you probably actually recognize that name if you're a student or fan of history as far as television goes. He's, he's big. He's done Hogan's Heroes. Uh, he's done Batman. He's done The Fugitive. He's done The Twilight Zone. He was a big-name director back then and continued to be a big-name director for a while. He, uh, he really wanted to push changes into Star Trek. He wanted to have directorial control over the episode. He did not have it. Roddenberry fought him tooth and nail every step of the way, and in many ways kind of served as a co-director of the episode. If that sounds familiar, it's basically what happened during Star Trek The Motion Picture as well. Here it worked out a little bit better, because what ended up happening was Butler would basically take over the scenes with the people, and Roddenberry would kind of push on other things, like set design and, and uh, costume and visual effects, stuff like that. There were two big cutting points for him. Uh, first of all, Butler decided to bow it. This is his only interaction with Star Trek, right here. He directed the cage. He wanted to make Star Trek look dirtier. Now, I don't mean, like, grimy. What I mean is Star Wars. Or kind of what Deep Space Nine would later do. Or Battlestar Galactica, even later in history. Because he really wanted there to be that lived-in feel, that, that visual approach. Ron Berry hated that idea. He wanted everything to look pristine and neat. And so he pushed back against that constantly. Funnily enough, Mr. Butler also made another suggested change. Change the name? No one's going to watch a show called Star Trek. Roddenberry decided not to go with that one either. So, we've got our idea, we've got our cast, we've got our director. We need a model, which is 11 feet long. I've seen pictures of the thing. It's ridiculous. I'd love to have that. That would just be a wonderful set piece. Um, there were also... Uh, they had some budget issues. Now, there's actually a couple of, of conflicting informations here, but I'm going to go with the one that looks most likely to me, and that they had a $452,000 budget, which is huge for the time, and the episode cost $616,000. Yeah, they went way over budget, which makes the fact that they made the second episode even more impressive. But I'm getting off topic. Let's talk about the episode, then we'll talk about the fallout briefly. So, they... We zoom in. We zoom in on the bridge. <sighs> nice transition for the time. Oh yeah, I, I have a note here, and I was just trying to remember what that note means. I... I'm going to be approaching TOS a little bit differently than all the other shows because, well, because this is a show made in the 60s. There's certain things you just kind of have to allot for. And the biggest one is tech. There are certain things where it's just you, you got to make allotances for what was available. Now, I'm going through with the Blu-rays, the remastered versions, uh, for several reasons, but the biggest and most important one is I've never actually watched the remastered collection all the way through, and I'd like to. Especially Cat's Paw, that'll be fun. So, 
I'm not going to be making fun or poking at, you know, some obvious technical issues. It's the same general approach I use over my video game reviews. If it's a design concept, you know, it's a matter of acting or presentation or directing or, or writing, then I will poke at that. If it's an obvious technical issue, I'll let it slide. Uh, you know, I'm not going to ding the NES for not having, you know, modern graphics, for example. Why does the mouse keep doing that? God. Sorry. So, we zoom in on what is a nice visual effect for the time, but most importantly, remember, this is a pilot, and it's intended to sell the show, so the zoom in to the bridge gets you an idea of where the crew are on that ship. We now understand what the bridge is on the ship with a quick, easy visual medium. It's actually good exposition. However, this then led to something that I remember distinctly. First time I ever watched The Cage, I was really confused by the intro, because... They're looking at the view screen, and the view screen's flickering, and they're mentioning these comets, and there's a collision alarm that actually it's just states. And then they get a radio signal. And this whole time I'm sitting here going, what? I was legitimately lost as a child. I'm actually curious if any of you ever had a similar reaction. See, the thing that really was a tripping point for me was that the radio wave is the thing they were detecting was going to collide with them. But it's a radio... Anyways... <clears throat> So, Pike, there's a nice bit. Uh, they, I haven't actually talked about Jeffrey Hunter all that much. I think he actually does a really good job of Pike. In fact, I think his portrayal of Pike is one of the reasons Pike became one of those semi-popular characters in the background and why he was brought forward with Discovery. And as of this, this recording, there are still rumors, but nothing codified, about actually doing a Pike show. So I can kind of see the logic there. But Pike's approach is different than Kirk's in several ways, and that's a good thing. In fact, if anything, Pike reminds me a lot more of Picard, probably on purpose. Or, to be slightly more accurate, Picard was probably in many ways modeled after Pike. So, Picard comes across as a bit callous, but it's more like he's very controlled and restrained. In fact, as his own line says, we have our own sick and injured to deal with, so that's why we're not going to answer this distress call. He mentions three dead, seven injures, injured. He also mentions uh, very strongly how, he, how much he holds himself accountable for this whole thing. I should have caught on to this. I should have known something was going to go wrong. It is on me. That, lo that loss, those deaths, those are on me. I screwed up. Even though, from what we hear, it's debatable that it wasn't. First of all, this is a great way to give us an insight into Pike's character. Again, with good, efficient exposition. He is a good leader who cares about his people, and we get a hint of the adventure that had just happened. Now that's important, because it implies the idea that this is not the beginning of Enterprise's show, or Enterprise's career in-universe. Rather, this is just another day in Enterprise's existence. Now that's important for several reasons, but the, most, the biggest part of that is Back in the day, episodes were not supposed to have any kind of continuity, like at all. And we'll be discussing their approach to continuity when, as we go through TOS. So this, one of the reasons this was so desired was from a simple, basic, technical, and pragmatic perspective. Because it allowed studios and television individual broadcasters to show the episodes in any order. Any episode can be seen in any order regardless of any other episode. And thus, every episode stands completely on its own, and they don't have to bother with figuring out which episode goes after which. 
The one really big exception about this is the Menagerie, which is a two-parter. We'll cover that later in obvious relevance to this episode, but we'll get there. So the idea of just having this implication that an adventure has just happened and that the adventure will continue is going to be a recurring, a recurring trend in TOS. This is also part of why the Captain's Log was originally invented, to give a quick dump of where we've been and where we're going. Anywho, <clears throat> so he mentions this. He talks about several things. His horses, riding, farmland... That's a nice touch, too, because it shows that this guy who lives in space on a spaceship nevertheless wants to retire home to a ranch. Now, that believability is something that Enterprise would actually reach very strongly for as well, and whether they succeed or not is up to you, but it's something that they wanted to make a thing. This is also partially why Kirk was born in Iowa, for example. Anywho... They also mentioned you could become an Orion trader dealing in slave women pointing that out. So the bartender, who was also a doctor, apparently, uh, they mentioned they, they get the same kind of customers, the living and the dying. Now, that sounds like a good line. I don't... I'm, I'm not sure I think it is. One of the things Ronbury as a writer tended to do was have lines that sound profound but kind of aren't. <laughs> Because if you have two customers living or dying, then you have just encompassed um, every currently alive human. And also someone who is dying is also still living. And the, and the thing just kind of breaks down the more you think about it. It's a good scene, don't mistake me. It's a good character scene. It helps establish Pike. It helps establish the, the ship and the ideas. There's a lot of good exposition going on. It's just There's the occasional line which just, just kind of made me go... Which is funny because, uh, by all accounts, Roddenberry absolutely poured himself into the script of this episode. Really, really nailed down and worked on it over and over and over and over and over again. So I don't want to sound as if I'm being too derogatory. Truth be told, this is just a minor hiccup. I have a substantially bigger problem with the dialogue later. Nevertheless, we then cut to them getting a paper printout. Paper on Star Trek. Holy crap. Um, so this then leads to an interesting scene that, to my knowledge, will not be repeated uh, ever in Star Trek history, at least not like this. What happens is they're like, take us out. And then a transparency of a star field moving kind of goes over the ship, over the view of the bridge. The, the camera keeps rolling, and we've got this transparency going. And the Star Trek theme starts playing. I'll be honest, this scene is so drug-trippy that for a moment I wasn't sure what I was looking at. By the way, it's probably a good time to mention that I haven't actually seen the cage in, it, in this format in a long time. I've seen the Menagerie a bunch, but as anyone who has seen the Menagerie will tell you, there are quite a few specific scenes which are just completely axed from the Menagerie for obvious reason. So, yeah. Anyways, so this scene is one of those scenes, and I'm just sitting here going... Now, I get it. They're trying to, once again, do that efficient exposition thing. And it's not the worst thing I've ever seen for that. See, the thing is, they couldn't do the, sh the what Star Trek will normally do after this point. They'll show the ship zooming off, right? Or entering warp, or traveling at warp. You know, the, the establishing shot is what that's usually called. They were, again, really having budget issues. You notice how that 11-foot model... 
doesn't actually show up all that much in this episode because recording and filming that thing is expensive and difficult and isn't going to look that all that great. So they were pretty hesitant to use it too much. So they used this technique. It's creative. I just don't think it worked. My favorite thing, though, this, this really cracks me up. There's this bit where, uh, you know, Hunter Pike goes down to talk to one of the, uh, the, the con men. He's like, hey, and, and except he doesn't say anything because we can't hear him because the music's playing. So the guy responds, but rather than going up and going, what we see is instead, and he gives a hand signal to him to indicate because the music's playing. <laughs> That, that that got a kick out of me. Uh, so, this then leads to a scene that I, I don't even know what to say about. I'm just not used to women being on the bridge. What? Oh, uh, sorry. You're different, number one. What? <laughs> um, I mean, okay. Obviously... It's hard to consider continuity when it comes to a pilot that uh, isn't continuity. This episode is in its own bubble of continuity. So it, it, this is why I hope I never actually have to do ruminations on the Twilight Zone. Because I'm not sure I can work on one episode that has no connections to anything. Maybe like one episode of Twilight Zone, but I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to cover the Twilight Zone series. Because this just throws me for a loop. I'm looking at this like, uh, okay, well I can't mention that and I can't mention I can't even mention Turnabout Intruder because that's a different continuity. Doesn't count. And I know what you're thinking, but Pike is canon. Yes, in the Menagerie. That's canon. <laughs> and thus as a result, some of the events of the cage are canon. And Discovery did something with that too. I think I don't I still haven't watched Discovery. Oh yeah, by the way, uh, I've mentioned this several times in the Enterprise stuff, but as of recording, I have not watched Lower Decks uh Discovery or Picard, so FYI. So, we have a brief scene. There's some good character moments here. Una, that is to say, number one, mentions how she's upset at not being able to go down to the planet. And by that, I mean she doesn't mention anything at all. She just sits there quietly at her station like she should. It is Pike who picks up on that. It's like, don't worry, we need you here because we need the most competent person on the ship to deal with this. Now, I like that. It's a nice little scene that helps to show, A, his faith in her, B, to quickly establish her uh, credentials, for lack of a better way to put it, and C, mention why she doesn't go with the initial party, which also sets up a later point. So that's actually good. So they put on some coats. Coats are good. Coats are good. Uh, the last time this will be happening in Star Trek history for several years, actually. This then leads to the beaming thing. I already actually kind of talked about this. Originally, the ship landed... What's weird is I was going to talk about this a lot more, but I did my digging with the availability of, of the various books and the, uh, the, the resources I had, and near as I can tell, there's no clear-cut transition between landing and beaming. The most common story I've heard is that it was a, a cost-saving feature, the same as the view screen is, but I haven't actually been able to verify that. What I do know is that they decided that they wouldn't do landing because of the fact that too many of the beginning episodes would simply be too porous and dry because they would have to have huge sections of the episode having the Enterprise land on the planet and then the people debark the Enterprise and they would have to do shots of the Enterprise being parked. And they just decided in 
in after the effect, this is, by the way, this is after beaming was already invented, they decided after the effect that beaming was a good idea because it prevented that from happening. But I haven't been able to find a lot of specifics on why that transition happened. Either way, this will also come up in the manhunt, by the way. Either way, we see beaming in action. And the way they show it and the way they set it up, we're kind of on board. It's teleporting from point A to point B. Cool. Then they walk around on Telosia. Two points, really quick. First, God, it's sad that this set looks better than TNG's. Early TNG, obviously. I'm going to point you to a specific episode. Hide in Q. It's in Season 1. And they go down to Planet Soundstage. And Planet Soundstage, I've always made fun of. This is part of what I mean when it comes to the difference between tech issues and design issues. Because Planet Soundstage looks like crap. It looks terrible. And it basically has no skybox. By contrast, this planet looks substantially better and actually does have a matte painting, a.k.a. a skybox, in the background. The set is substantially smaller in this episode than the one they used in Hide and Q, but they use the density better. My opinion, and as I'm always, I'm always curious of uh, your guys' thoughts. Actually, that's a recurring trend, by the way. Later on, there's the bit where they're in the, the grassy field, which is this dinky spot. It's probably smaller than the studio I'm in right now recording this in. But several trees. There's the horse kind of coming off the side. There's the matte painting in the background. There's the fake grass. They do a good job with what they have. This is Again, this is part of what I mean. I actually am going to give them praise for what are effectively bad sets because what they did with the sets was very good for the time and, most importantly, it still works to this day. I mean, I've seen better, but I can look at that and kind of see what they were going for, and I am now brought into the episode rather than pushed out of it. That's a key thing for me. They also have the flowers. I'm going to admit something. I never realized until doing the research for this episode that those flowers were making the music that's playing in this scene. Because they're actually referred to as singing flowers. And when they fiddle with them, the music kind of alters and stops and then keeps playing. And I was just... Somehow that never clicked, because apparently I'm a moron. <laughs> I, I know that's such a dumb thing to get stuck up on, but do you know how rare it is for me to jump to find something in Star Trek now, when I'm 37, and suddenly be like, I never knew that. Anyways. <clears throat> I mean, a behind-the-scenes thing, sure, but that's right there on camera. Uh, so... They start talking to them, and they talk about, oh my god, you poor people, and we're going to interact with each other, and yada, yada, yada. I don't have much to say about this, except for the fact that there's this bit where they're talking about how they've broken the time barrier. This is based on evidence most likely to do with a way to violate time dilation problems with going faster than light. Which, sure, okay, I'm with that. Warp bubbles, okay, okay. But what's funny is he's in the middle of saying this and he actually cuts himself off because Vina shows up. Because she's so gorgeous. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No offense to, to Miss Oliver. Oh, God, what was her last name again? I've already forgot. I'm so terrible. Why am I so terrible? Uh, no, it is Miss Oliver. It is Miss Oliver. Susan Oliver. God, dang, stop doubting yourself, Laura. No offense to Miss Oliver, uh, but this is a really common thing in TOS. And then there's this woman, and God, she's just gorgeous. And it kind of turns into a Looney Tunes thing. 
where they're just, oh my god, I will totally abandon all logic and reason because there's an attractive woman. And the music even changes. Actually, I want to give special praise to the music in this episode. I don't talk about music in Trek often because the majority of what I've covered includes late TNG, DS9, and Voyager, which is a huge bulk of Star Trek, where the music is bland and boring. Wallpaper music, as I've referred to it as before. I believe I got the term from Sci-Fi Debris specifically. So there you go, Jongo. I finally referenced SF Debris just for you. <clears throat> I haven't actually watched SF Debris in several years, and he brought this up. Uh, not because he's gotten worse in quality, or just I haven't had time. I'm covering my own Star Trek stuff. Oh, God, I've got how many episodes to go? 25? Anyways, so <clears throat> the point is... Actually, it's more than 20. It's closer to like 40. The point is that the music in this episode is basically being recorded as the episode's played, and they're playing the music live, obviously. So what ends up happening is the music naturally flows and follows the course of events of the episode. And there's motifs that will play, you know, and then someone shows up, and then it cuts to Vina, will play, and just little motifs like that played uh, to show, showcase characters, to showcase seriousness of scenes. It's good stuff, and I just wanted to give praise where praise is due, but man, check out this lady, she's super hot, is certainly a funny thing. There's also a music shift when the Telosians reveal themselves, and... Oh, by the way, Pike is also stunned by just how beautiful Vina is. Just, wow, I'm just going to forget myself because she's gorgeous. Whatever. This also... There's brief shades of the Twilight Zone here because the next thing that happens is we should show them the secret. The secret of why we're so healthy. I think they're ready for it. And that, that, just, that just screams Twilight Zone right there, doesn't it? I go, oh God, it's people. But no, instead, it's actually nothing. It's just a distraction. And, oh my God, it's time to, to stun the guy, and then they got to drag them indoors. So they decide to start shooting the door, because, you know, the door isn't destroyed. I want you to remember that for later. Do me a favor. <clears throat> so... This then cuts to Pike and the Keeper really interacting for the first time. And the two talk at each other. There's also this nice bit where the Keeper says, the subject will now do the extremely predictable thing, thereby predicting the Matrix revolutions all the way back in the 60s. And Pike then does the predictable thing. Again, Matrix reference. And he also says something, we can soon begin the experiment. Da -da -da -da! Twilight Zone. This is also when we start to see the terrifying power of illusion. There's a whole scene discussing it and laying it out for the audience on the off chance you haven't picked up on it. Now, as the episode will show, their power of illusion is not absolute. There are limits to what they can do, how they can access, and so forth and so on. Which is good, because if they just had ultimate power, well, then they'd just be the Q. And even the Q arguably don't have ultimate power. Instead, what they have is exactly what it sounds like. And, I mean, anybody who has ever min-maxed Dungeons & Dragons knows the power of illusion is absolutely OP. In fact, in a lot of fiction, power of illusion tends to be ridiculously OP. Looking at you, Bleach! <laughs> so they do a good shot of this, you know. We could destroy half a, confident, a continent, and Spock has this line, no, they could just reach out and swat this ship like it was a fly. Remember that, by the way. 
So they mentioned that thousands of Thelosians are actually reading his brain, Pike's brain specifically. I wonder if there's only thousands of them left at this point. I don't think they ever addressed that. It's just interesting to consider. What then happens is a long action sequence. Now, if you're paying attention, this is the first action sequence in the whole work. Its placement is also interesting. The first act was all establishment. The second act is the mystery and the threat. The third act is now action. If we were, I, I'm actually doing this out of order, but the point is, in terms of sections of the narrative, that's where we're at. We're at the third section, which is now. Da -da -da -da. This also helps to explain why the action sequence takes so long. Now, I don't. That's not a complaint. It's just usually when you see this kind of an action set piece, it's only a couple of minutes. Whereas this feels like it fills an entire section of the episode by itself. It's not actually that long, but they do spend a decent amount of time trying to focus on not only the threat, but the threat to him and the nature of his relationship to Vina. She portrays herself as, oh, I'm just an illusion. I'm just an illusion. Remember that, by the way. There's also this bit where he asks, why would an illusion be scared? And she fumbles for a second before saying, because you, this is how you imagined me which could say something about Pike and that he accepts that without question. But what I find far more interesting is, again, the fact that she is so insistent on being portrayed as just an illusion and not a physical, biological person. They fight and they fight and they fight and they fight. Um, there's also this night, nice bit because she also mentions, she doesn't phrase it this way, but your mind makes it real. That is effectively what she says. So even though it's just an illusion, if he hits you, it's going to hurt. So you do have to fight back. Now that's actually important because it establishes the nature of the threat. If an illusion can't hurt you at all, then it's not hurtful. There's no danger. The audience isn't going to be quite as invested, especially for an audience picking up a brand new show they've never seen before. Instead, even though it's an illusion, it does hurt, which actually makes it more dangerous because you can do more with an illusion than you can do with reality. There's also a nice bit where after it's over, she is so relieved that it's over because she was probably legitimately scared because she understands how much this can go badly and how much it can hurt. She then continues to be coy, continuing to pretending to be an illusion. The real-life reason for this is to help have a bit of a twist later. But I find myself wondering why in character she did that. Now, I'll, I'll discuss that in just a second. We also have some legitimately awful transition shots here. I'm only commenting on it because they do some legitimately clever and good transition shots in this same show. Just pointing it out. I don't know if that's Cutler's influence or not. The man probably has the chops for it. A good example of that, later on, uh, he is punished by being given an illusion of being in hell, also known as fire with a bunch of oatmeal. But mockery aside and credit to Hunter, it does seem appropriately terrifying and painful. And the transition shot is a gust of flame coming up and covering the camera, but when the faint flame recedes, they're back to normal reality. So that's actually, that's a good, that's a good transition shot, it's a good sequence. Anywho, <clears throat> so, she mentions, will you share a dream with me if I answer your question? Bargaining. Why? Well, that's obvious, isn't it? She has a quota. No, think about it. She clearly has a mandate as part of her orders. You need to get him to open up and share some of his dreams with you so we can learn more about him and we can enjoy it, and, of course, because of our long-term thing. So she starts answering some questions. 
The first is, of course, the, the big thing. They had powers of the mind so great, everything else atrophied. This is actually something that was considered a common pro uh, potential problem in a lot of older science fiction and fantasy. And it's the kind of idea that's still addressed to this day. Para example, if we all had access free and easy to a holodeck, would society stop functioning? Now the answer is no. There's simply too many people who are not going to be into that who will continue pushing things forward regardless, and someone's got to repair the holodecks. And those people who repair the holodecks are going to need food, and that food needs to come from somewhere. And Basically, there's still going to be society going on. It might be substantially altered, but humankind is not going to come to an end because we have access to the pleasure palace at 24 hours a day. It's not. There are people who will be into that, and there are people who will not. Which leads me, of course, to this episode, the idea that the people who weren't, well... This is pure headcanon, but I like to think that the people who decided not to d go down below uh, died because of the war and the devastation. Remember, they mentioned the surface has only recently become capable of sustaining life again. Very recently. So anybody who decided not to go down below died, and so those down below developed the mental powers, and the mental powers led to them getting caught in the trap, the lotus trap, if you will. Interesting little take on it, and of course very related to the Forbidden Planet, which there's actually quite a bit of possibility Forbidden Planet actually stole some of these ideas from the cage, but let's not get into that right now. It's a good movie, though. I do actually recommend you see the Forbidden Planet, if you, ever, if you never have. Uh, it's a legitimately good old sci-fi film, in my opinion. Anyways, having gone through all this and this whole idea, this then leads to something else. This amuses me. She doesn't say this, but what they need is new stuff. Oh, they have their dreams and their fantasies, but they have a limitation of imagination and interaction. So they bring in other species so that they can cause, you know, they can use their thoughts, their memories, in order to interact with them, and it basically becomes a TV show for them. That's interesting to me because of A, the stagnation element, but B, Imagine for a moment you could watch an episode of Star Trek and literally feel the same things that your characters are feeling. Because that's essentially what's being posited here. You've, you've heard of VR? No, 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 no. This is like a step past that. This is actually a step past holodecks, if you want to go into that. And kind of terrifying, but also really cool from a cultural perspective. If I'm not mistaken, Shadowrun, one of the cyberpunk settings, actually goes into something very similar to that, where you plug yourself in and you actually experience a, a, you know, stuff uh, like a, a show or an episode or sex or death or whatever, right? Because what happens is the, the, you plug yourself into the program and the program is actually attached to another real person. So everything you're experiencing is actually happening to someone. You're just the one feeling it. Which kind of ties in with this thing. By the way, it's just as horrible as it sounds over in Shadowrun. Which, of course, is why it's portrayed for horror here. Because that is a horrifying thought. Interesting, though. I think uh, there's a lot of cool cultural stuff you can do with that. But I'm getting off topic, of course. This then leads to her admitting that she's a real person. That she is a biological flesh and blood human. That leads to her, immediately leads to her being punished. Thus, we are left with the implication that the mandate that she not reveal that she's a real person came from them, not from her. Which leads me back to the original question. Why? Why are they so insistent that she appeared to be an illusion at first, especially since they're doing so little to mask that? They could have her be anybody. 
You could literally bring in different actresses if you wanted to. I know, I know, budget issues. But you get my point. Why have this whole thing? To my knowledge, the point of that masquerade is never actually unveiled. So what do you think? Why do you think the, the Delosians didn't want him to know that she was a real person? Especially considering that their inevitable plan was for them to procreate and create a new slave race. Which uh, has all of the problems with it, by the way. But let's not get into that. <laughs> so, this then leads to the idea of food that can be whatever. Now that's an interesting aspect of the illusion power. Here is your food. It tastes like nothing. It's bland, boring, and disinteresting. But, because we have the power of illusion, you can imagine it to be a steak, or, you know, cotton candy, or whatever you want. How's that for an interesting idea? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there, but I, I could, could just go for like 20 minutes about the fascinating stuff you could do with the idea of being able to imagine food as anything and effectively have the taste and the experience of eating, you know, cotton candy and still get a full healthy meal out of that. But we're here to talk about this episode, so this is when the hell oatmeal thing happens and the cool transition happens. This is also when they mention that they, they want this to be a velvet cage. They want it to be nice and good and everything's awesome. And we want you to be happy here as a slave race. I, I say that, but there's no joking in my terminology. They do want slaves, but they want those slaves to be happy. I will admit it's nice to see slavers being portrayed as something other than the <laughs> I'm evil and eat puppies for breakfast. But it also, in its own way, almost makes it more horrifying, doesn't it? This also then leads to the the tiny set out in the, the fields. I mentioned that earlier. It is a good set. I already mentioned that. He also has this great line. I think I understand the doctor's answer. And he gives this speech about you need to live your life as it comes, or you need to turn your back and start dying. This that ties back into what is effectively the central motif of the entire episode, at least in my opinion. I think Roddenberry was pushing this hard enough that this was probably his big shtick. Life, good and bad, is the kind of thing you need to endure and live with because it's worth it. And just giving up and, you know, living in a dream world is just going to lead to nothing good. Now, nowadays, we could probably look at that and be like, well, duh, but I get where he's going with that idea. And I'm kind of with the theme. I actually practice escapism on a literal daily basis, except when I'm working, uh, like on these videos. This isn't really escapism. This is my job. But the point is, I do do escapism. Why? Well, because the world's terrible. But I also still live in that world and work in that world and hang out with my family and try to have some semblance of an existence here. Because to escape fully and completely is a fairly demonstrably unhealthy thing to do. And that's on an individual basis. As the episode shows with the extreme of sci-fi, an entire species going into escapism just leads to degradation. And um, the end of their species is what's implied. Although I haven't seen that Discovery episode I mentioned earlier, so... Anyways... <clears throat> This then leads to a line that is one of those lines that makes less sense the more you think of it. They can't read primitive emotions. Okay. What's a primitive emotion? They say hate. 
they misuse the word, but they say hate. So, anger? Okay, anger being primitive does make a degree of sense. Funnily enough, science that has come out after this episode came out has confirmed that your brain literally has a greater difficulty in processing thought while you're angry. So, okay, I'm kind of with that. What else would qualify as a primitive emotion? Love? Fear? Um, how about uh, desire of any kind? You know, hunger? Hunger seems pretty primitive, right? I'm just curious. I, I'm not poking holes in the episode. It's just something that kind of makes me wonder. But it does lead to the one part of the episode I actively dislike. The Orion Slave Girl episode, uh, scene. I looked it up. This, ep this scene is... I keep saying episode. What is wrong with me? This scene is only a minute and 40 seconds long. Which feels way, way too long for it. Because it's a minute and 40 seconds of weird druggy, trippy music playing a little bit too loudly in a way that's intended to be disorienting while the camera angles are constantly jumping around and doing extreme close-ups of Pike, who looks like he's really disoriented too. I think they were supposed to show him being tempted, but that's not what I get out of that at all. Maybe that's just Hunter's performance. I don't know. And there's just the weirdest dialogue for this sequence. I should have written it down. Because the dialogue is so bizarre. I can't even... It's like episode one Phantom Menace dialogue. You know, the kind of things that human beings do not say. It's the kind of stuff that is not spoken as dialogue. It's just so nonsensical that I'm not sure where exactly to go with it. Isn't it worth a man's soul? What exactly is worth a man's soul? Being a, an Orion traitor? By the way, you'll notice this is another thing he mentioned to the Doctor early on, so... Credit where credit is due on that one. This also leads to a great transition. This is actually probably the best transition in the entire work, in my opinion. There's this bit where he gets up and rushes off to be away from this, to just get away from all of the noise and the, the incredibly sexy Orion woman, who is ironic because she's actually not an Orion there. <laughs> but she gets to be the original green-skinned alien babe, so that's, that's cool. She started a whole franchise, basically. Or not franchise, excuse me, a whole, whole trope. But as he, he, he walks away, and the music gets quieter and quieter, and he, as he's walking away, it goes from being a room to a cave, just the background, naturally. And then he looks around weirded out, and he's in a cave. And then he turns around, and the music stopped. And he goes back, and now there's a cave wall where he had just walked through. Note that this is all one uninterrupted shot, so they had to have some grips on the side quietly rush in, get the wall in place, and then rush back, you know, the, 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 the portable wall, in time for him to then turn around and be like, <gasps> in fact, probably the cue for him turning around was them successfully putting it. You notice the camera also quickly gets to the point where the wall is no longer in the shot, so they were probably already moving the wall the moment the camera was done moving. It's a very well-executed shot, and once again emphasizes what I was talking about earlier. With very limited tech, technology, time, budget, and everything, they still managed a very impressive shot. That works very well for getting across the illusory and mind-gamey nature of what's happening here. So, this then leads to them talking about beaming down. I gotta be honest, I wouldn't beam down under these circumstances. As pointed out, it could be beamed inside solid rock. That doesn't sound super awesome to me. But either way, this also leads to the women, which I think is the most quoted uh, quoted scene of this entire episode. Venus starts to get really possessive 
at this point, insults the yeoman for being stupid, and uh, Una, number one, for being too smart. She also says something that I don't know if this ended up inspiring the idea, but she calls number one, played by Majel Barrett, a computer. We also find out that number one fantasizes about Pike. Don't blame her. You know, it's Pike. So... This then leads to a weird bit where Spock tries to leave orbit. Uh, Spock takes command of the ship and says, we gotta go. But the, sh the power's all off, even though that doesn't make a lot of sense. And then they start reading the information from the ship, and this is when Spock says they're going to swat us. Which has a lot of different connotations back then than it does nowadays, doesn't it? But it's in relation to his earlier comment about being swatted like a fly. Question. Why do the Telosians prevent the Enterprise from leaving? By all accounts, they only want two humans, which is horrifically problematic, but whatever. And thus, they have absolutely no reason to prevent the ship from leaving. In fact, the Telosians would overall benefit in their cause if they allowed the Enterprise to leave, because now they have humans who are stranded here, so they can more easily coerce them to their cause. But instead, they prevent the Enterprise leaving, that way the heroes can leave at the end of the episode. There's this nice bit, actually a really nice bit. It's it's very clever. Pike uh, grabs the weapons. They seem to not be working. And so he deliberately drops them over by the, the section of the wall, which he knows has a panel that can go through it. Then he sits there, and he, ta he talks constantly about how he's filling his mind with hateful thoughts. I like to think that that's one of those things we did back in the day when we didn't trust our actors to show the emotion they were feeling. And instead, just they constantly talk about the emotion they're feeling. I don't know, because it, it, it's really awkward and weird how he just talks about how angry he's going to be. Because he says it like five or six times. It's a, it's a mantra almost. But nevertheless, with the guns over there, the Telosian comes in to claim it, and he is, of course, ready for the Telosian. Grabs the neck, says, I'm going to strangle you. Fantas illusion or no, I do have my hands around your neck, and if I have enough self-discipline to ignore what my senses are telling me, I have the power to alter this. Stop, or I'll kill you. The Telosian then says, we'll kill your ship. This is the best reason I've ever come up with for why they decided to keep the Enterprise as a bargaining chip. Although they only threaten it the one time. They don't actually do anything to hurt it. This then leads to his comment, I think you're too intelligent to kill without a reason. Boy, that's an interesting comment, isn't it? But either way, he blasts the wall, they go through, they find out about the slave race, the thing was leveled. I mentioned, I mentioned that... Door was blasted away earlier, and I wanted you to remember that, right? Near as I can tell, the roof was blasted away, too. I find myself wondering, does it rain here? Because if it does, that's a problem. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big problem for an underground facility that probably doesn't have a, a place to get that out. Maybe this is why they're in such a hurry to get things, these people going and fixing things. I don't know. I mean, Starfleet engineers can turn rocks into replicators, so... Yeah, they could probably be useful. And remember, Tucker is before this historically... Oh, right. Right, not continuity. <laughs> I, I, I'm not even joking. I'm not doing that for a meme. I actually didn't mean to do that. Whatever. There's this really good scene where Pike is self-sacrificial. 
okay, haha, Jeffrey Hunter is willing to sacrifice himself for the good of his people. But the point is, it is Pike who stands up and does the heroic thing and says, I will sacrifice myself to save my people. It is number one who makes the far more pragmatic and arguably correct call. I will kill us all. <laughs> what you're doing is wrong. Keeping a slave race is wrong. So I'm just going to turn this on to overload and sit here and we're going to die. And Pike is completely in favor of this, first of all. But also he tells Vina to go and he allows the Telosian to go. Interesting tidbit. This, of course, is intended to, to verify that they are, in fact, the heroes, despite the fact that they're about to you know, cause a lot of damage to the nearby area. This then leads to an interesting tidbit. So, they want a slave race. Okay. One of the next things that happens, it's the same scene, is they mention, well, maybe we can have peaceful coexistence. Neck bulge. And... Maybe we can have trade agreements. Maybe we can fix this some more, you know, reasonable way, like civilized beings. It is the Telosian who points out, eventually you would learn of our power of illusion, it would destroy you too. I'm not actually sure if I agree with that, but it does help to explain why this planet would become blocked off in the future, and why we've basically never seen the Telosians after this point. This also leads to Vina's appearance being restored to its normal thing. This bothers me, because she's apparently a cripple, physically a cripple. She doesn't work right. First of all, because I can't consider the rest of continuity, I'm not sure if they have the medical tech within the bubble of this one episode in order to actually help her back on the ship. So I don't know if that's an option. If this was part of Enterprise, it absolutely would be an option, and we'll possibly talk about that in Menagerie. I don't remember what exactly is canon in Menagerie, so we'll talk about that later. But the relevant point here is she's already a cripple, which means she's already shambling around and having difficulty functioning while also probably being in a decent amount of pain. You remember how they mentioned earlier that the illusion's like a drug? They said that twice, actually. The implication very strongly here is that she is under a constant illusion, which is constantly preventing her from feeling whatever she's actually feeling. Now, there's ways that this doesn't line up and how the, you know, the, the Vena who can move around and jump and talk and run is probably not the actual thing she's actually doing because she physically can't. Let's just gloss over that for a second. Because this, this doesn't actually help her change her thing, her situation. So the idea of that illusion covering for that lines up. What does not line up is the episode doesn't even begin to discuss that. Instead, it just mentions, look at me. And when talking about fixing her, all he says is restore her beauty. Because, I mean, God, would you, I'd rather die than be an uggo, right? I know, I know, it's a 60s show, but I'm still going to point it out. This is TOS. This is going to be a recurring thing, I told you. And then, of course, we find out that humans have a unique hatred of captivity. Yeah, let's tell the Klingons about that one. But no, what we really want to talk about is the end of the episode... It's a wah-wah. Now, for those of you who haven't been seeing me covering anything else, a wah-wah is when the episode ends on a like some kind of lighthearted note, usually a joke or a gag, and sometimes the act characters will actually laugh along with it, fading into the thing. A lot of Season 1 TNG did that. A decent chunk of TOS did that. MLP's been doing that, too, which is just eyeball rolling. 
And it's just funny that the first episode of Star Trek ever establishes the wah-wah ending. Which, I mean, I know it was kind of normal in television at the time, so that's just whatever. Let's talk about the aftermath a little bit. Just a little bit. So, first of all, several people said that they didn't like the ending to the episode. Why? Because it should have been a fist fight between the hero and the villain. Because that's how television was done at the time. Blink, blink. Um, I have nothing else to add to that. I've already talked about how many issues they had getting television that wasn't safe in general, so I suppose that's valid. I mentioned they didn't want Majel Barrett back. I've heard different accounts of that. Some people say they didn't want Majel because she was currently having an affair with Roddenberry, which was extramarital, which the executives were uncomfortable with. Some people say she didn't have the acting chops to manage it. Some people say that they just didn't want a female at all. I've heard all three of these accounts. Of these, the one that I find most believable is that she didn't ha have the acting chops and that they were okay with her being a woman. It's a bit of a shame that we didn't end up having someone like number one on the show. We did get Nichelle's Nichols. That's, that's cool. But Nichelle Nichols, excuse me. But nevertheless, this is the kind of thing that just kind of makes me raise an eyebrow. They wanted to axe the yeoman, several other characters, including the doctor. Uh, this also then led to uh, Solo, Herbert Solo, to actually hiring a casting director. Now you're probably thinking, well, but Laura, you mentioned uh, Joseph de Agora, uh, Agosta, excuse me, Joseph de Agosta earlier, right? Yeah, the guy who Roddenberry had worked with before who cast everyone on the phone from another state. Think about that for a second. Actually, I don't know if it was another state. It's implied, but I don't actually know that, so I shouldn't say that. Point being, he did his casting over the phone. So they hired an actual casting director to go forward. But there was one last mandate, and this is the last thing I want to talk about, because this is hysterical. The executive mandate for changes that they demanded was they wanted it to be less sexy. They that uh, that's my terminology. They wanted let the they felt uncomfortable with the excessive eroticism, and felt like the focus on the female form was too much. Wow, the times they have changed. Now, in case you're not fully getting the joke, remember, from my perspective, I've already covered Enterprise up to season two, and for those of you not aware, season two Enterprise had several mandates, two big ones I've referenced several times. One. Enterprise Season 2 needed to be more episodic and less contiguous, less continuity. And two, more sexy. <sighs> Nevertheless, Cage was good enough to get, well, you know what, I'm going to chop off here. Let's talk about how they managed to get something going next episode, because... As I have mentioned before, and as I will talk more about next week, we are going to be doing these in production order, which means the next episode we'll be covering is Where No Man Has Gone Before, the second pilot. <sighs> I hope you've enjoyed, guys. This has been a trip. I this, is, this has actually been destroying my schedule, if I'm being honest, because there's so much material to read through. I hope I've at least done a decent job of this surface-level, bare-first-pass uh, examination and discussion of these things. And I hope you have enjoyed overall. I'll see you next time, guys.